You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's August 21st. Conditions in the U.S. today are reminiscent of those that contributed to radicalization in the 1970s and could lead to political violence, including terrorism. That's according to Rand's Brian Michael Jenkins, a renowned terrorism expert. In a new commentary published this week, Jenkins explains how this might happen. The pandemic is depriving people of their daily routines and personal relationships, not to mention causing serious economic distress. And all the while, divisions in American society are widening. Whether to wear a mask, and even whether the pandemic is real, have become partisan issues. And there is widespread anguish and anger over systemic racism and police brutality. Conditions like these can change how people behave in a seemingly more hostile world. How they view the legitimacy of government authority, and even how they value life itself sometimes spurring apocalyptic and nihilistic thinking, says Jenkins. And ultimately, this could create a receptive audience for fringe ideas and could accelerate radicalization among individuals. Looking back to the 1970s, Jenkins notes that the government took some meaningful actions. For instance, in response to the anti-war movement, the draft was ended, the voting age was lowered to 18, and the U.S. ended its involvement in the Vietnam War. Can America do it again in 2020? Perhaps, says Jenkins. Lawmakers have at least begun to debate legislative priorities related to police violence and systemic racism, for example. But at the same time, the political establishment has not proved capable of calming passions for many years. The U.S. response to the pandemic has shown that by further cleaving an already deeply divided society. For now, says Jenkins, Deliverance must come from our own common sense and sense of community. In nearly every profession, women are paid less than men. There are a number of factors that contribute to this earnings gap, from differences in job negotiation tactics to workplace bias to disparities in how credit is attributed. A new RAND study identifies yet another detail that may influence women's pay the number of men in their workplace. Specifically, the findings show that female doctors in practices that are overwhelmingly male are paid substantially less than women in practices with more gender diversity. For example, female surgeons who work in practices with an equal number of male and female doctors earned about $46,500 less a year than their male counterparts, $46,500 is a large amount, but it's also about 10% less than male surgeons made. And as the proportion of male surgeons in the practice increased, so did the gender pay gap, peaking at a difference of nearly $150,000 for female surgeons who worked in practices where 90% or more surgeons were men. Although this study focuses on doctors, the authors say that these dynamics likely apply to other professions, too. So what does it mean? Well, the findings suggest that increasing the number of women in workplaces is more than just an important goal in and of itself. It could also help to reduce the gender pay gap. 
Many have hailed the recent agreement to normalize relations between Israel and the UAE as a transformative moment for the Middle East. But this is hyperbole, says Rand's Dalia Dasa K. There are several reasons why the deal doesn't merit the hype. First, Israel is not and has not been at war with the UAE, so normalizing relations between the two parties doesn't change any basic bilateral or regional conflict dynamics. Second, the agreement does not reshape the regional coalition against Iran, one that has been in place for years. Third, the deal doesn't alter the biggest divide in the region between Arab leaders and people. Fourth, and finally, it does not change the dismal realities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If the Israel-UAE agreement leads to a genuine opening for dialogue and cooperation that helps address the dire challenges facing the Middle East, then that would be an agreement to celebrate, says Kay. But if it merely reinforces long-standing and largely negative trends, then it's understandable why the enthusiasm in the region may not match the exuberant responses in Israel or Washington. The re-election of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko earlier this month, which was widely seen as fraudulent, has sparked mass demonstrations and labor strikes. On Wednesday, the European Union stood with the people of Belarus, promising to sanction those responsible for violence against protesters. Belarus may be on the verge of political change, and according to Rand's William Courtney and Michael Hultzel of Johns Hopkins University, there are ways that the West can support a peaceful transition of power. That is, if the West is allowed to play such a role. For example, the West might consider calling for a new presidential election in Belarus with credible monitoring. The West could also provide technical assistance to help ensure fair campaigning and honest balloting. And after such an election, the Belarusian authorities and opposition might even ask for further mediation from the West. It's possible that the prospect of providing such support may be dimming, as Lukashenko has reportedly refused calls from Western leaders this week. But with the situation in Belarus changing by the day, it behooves the West to be ready, if and when they are asked to help. In a typical month, temporary layoffs represent no more than 15% of America's unemployed. In April, it was 57%. What has happened to the workers affected by these layoffs since April? Rand's Catherine Edwards explains that the answer to this question reveals a lot about the state of the U.S. economy. Among the 16.8 million workers who thought in April that their joblessness was temporary, about one-third were called back, or found a new job, by the summer. About one-fourth no longer thought they had a job to return to, and the rest, an astounding 7.6 million workers, were still in limbo. Here's another revealing statistic. 20% of permanent layoffs in May and June had been temporary the month before. This might indicate how much of the controlled shutdown to stop the spread of COVID-19 has become an uncontrolled economic recession, says Edwards. She notes that the U.S. has never had such a large number of temporary layoffs among the unemployed before. That's why tracking monthly flows from temporary to permanent is important. While it might not tell us everything we need to know, 
Giving up on returning to a prior job or finding a new one, especially when a job used to be waiting for you, is a sign of protracted labor market decline. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week. Thank you.